Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, and joining me as always through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi, Matt. How's it going? Hey, man. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm, uh, as well as every, everyone else in the UK, bracing myself for the incoming cold snap um, mm. that has been delayed from early in February to, you know, early in March. And, you know, I will be prepping my tauntaun. For, uh, for work, and yeah, generally just complaining about it for a few weeks. So you got that to look forward to next time we speak. Fantastic. Yeah, we had a cold snap for for about six or seven weeks over here at the start of the year where, I mean, cold snap in Florida terms is very relative, but mm. it was very much, very, very mild verging on cold for that entire time, and it's only just started to heat up, and it's very hard to adjust to it because I used to because it was it was everyone else at work was complaining about it, but I was like, oh man, I can walk to work and I can put on a nice jumper and just kind of like stroll in. I don't have to worry about kind of getting there and being just all hot and bothered. It's all very nice. And now it's like, oh man, now I have to think about if I want to put on shorts to go into work. And I, as a a person who values their professional appearance, mm. I I just can't I can't countenance going to, sh- to work in shorts, even though it would probably make a lot more sense weather and comfort-wise. But no, I can't do that. I, and I also, there are some people at work who come to work in sandals, and I just, it's just no. That's, it's just no. that's monstrous. Um, <laughs> yeah, that kind of behaviour shouldn't be tolerated. But it's good to see that you and I can uh, can kind of confirm all the stereotypes about English dudes running about the weather and attire. Mm-hmm. It seems. Yeah, and I can certainly confirm all of the stereotypes about the the tech industry, which is that everyone dresses like shit <laughs> and doesn't really put any effort into their appearance because they think, oh, I'm just going to be surrounded by a bunch of dudes all day. Mm. doesn't really matter. They do uh, kind of have, like, thinking beanbags and shit like that. Is it a very progressive office where like, you can square water pistols at each other's office doors and stuff? Uh, they did used to, for a long time, have Nerf gunfights. Uh, which, uh, yeah, so, like, if you had a Nerf gun, then there was a good chance that at some point in the day you would get uh, shot at, uh, and there are kind of, like, ball pits in some of the big meeting rooms. So, uh, which is kind of fun in the sense that if there's not uh, a seat at the table, you can just throw yourself into the ball pit and just kind of make yourself comfy and just kind of float there while everyone else is talking about whatever they need to talk about. Wow, that's a different a different world. <laughs> yeah, a different kind of forcefully whimsy world. Mm. Can you imagine, like, talking to our great grandparents or whatever, who, like, <laughs> you know, were literally at the coal face, you know, like, mm. you know, well, mine weren't, I'm southern, do you know what I mean? But they were, like, digging yeah. shit up in, like, the field or something, you know, doing actual work that, like, you know, there's a chance you might die, and then there's you yeah. in a ball pit, and. Yeah. You know, my aforementioned uh, uh, struggles with like dialing in a coffee machine. Um, <laughs> you know, it's you know, it's a different time. Mm, yeah, when my great granddad was dying on the beaches of Dunkirk, mm. <laughs> he did it knowing one day his feckless great grandchild <laughs> could uh, work in a, an office building where they have mm. ball pits. Idea for idea for a light-hearted comedy, feckless grandchild. <laughs> a body swap time travel buddy comedy in which mm-hmm. t- 
two generations of the same family who never met are forced to swap. So, like, a feckless grandchild who, uh, I don't know, he works in, like, you know, an artisanal sandal shop, let's just say, has to swap places with, like, his great-granddad, who was, like, a cobbler in, like, you know, an Italian peasant village or something. And Mm. hilarity ensues um, when... You know, he's like, oh, can I get a flat white? And, uh, you know, there's all this kind of weirdness. I mean, as I'm saying out loud, it seems like less of an idea, but, (laughs) (laughs) like, maybe that's how Hollywood pitches work. People kind of, they say, you know, there are no bad ideas, but, yeah, I think there are. That might be one. Yeah, I mean, it's basically Goodnight Sweetheart, isn't it? That ran ran for, like, five years, so I think think there's, there's, there's legs in it. Mm, yeah, yeah. Although that was just like a time travel in which an ugly man had the excuse <laughs> to to commit adultery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, finds himself a great little loophole in pretending to be his own distant relative. Mm, yeah, that shit's messed up. Although, so this is a film podcast, right? And we've already mm-hmm. gone through like ball pools and Goodnight Sweetheart and yep. the weather. So um, should we actually get to some film stuff now? That might be good. <sighs> I suppose, yes. Mm. So uh, our first news item this week is kind of a catch-up from the last week's episode where we talked about Black Panther. Uh, The second weekend for the film was incredible. The first weekend was incredible. It was actually much better than we said it was at the time that we were recording because we only had estimates and when we talked it was like, oh, it's done like 192 million and it ended up being 200 million and over 240 million for four days which was pretty much record-breaking certainly the best four-day weekend ever and second only to the force awakens and how quickly it's kind of reaching all of these milestones which is uh, amazing and then this second weekend it earned 108 million which again could probably tick up when the actuals come in where which i think when the film was first kind of announced and even up to a few weeks ago people would have said, you know, 108 million, that'd be pretty good opening weekend for Black Panther. It certainly would have been one of the best for, like, a original Marvel movie. But uh, instead, yeah, that was it in weekend two. It's at 400 million in 10 days, and it is, I think, a bona fide phenomenon at this point. Mm, I mean, it, it crossed uh, half a billion dollars worldwide in about six days, did it, or something like that, or maybe even... Yep sooner it uh this is my favorite fact about the uh, black panthers box office hall is uh in two days uh no four days it outstripped justice league's entire take the entire time yeah. it was open <laughs> which is pretty funny mm. yeah and certainly i think uh not something that people would have been predicting a year out obviously i think people would have thought both of those movies are going to do fine they because people don't seem that excited about justice league but it still has all of those iconic characters and dc has a certain level that it manages to hit kind of a low 300s and they, but and then conversely you think well people are excited to see black panther in his own movie but marvel standalone movies don't do that well like 200 something million for anything that isn't iron man would be pretty good but yeah, it has blown past all expectations, and uh, it's great. I went to the cinema yesterday to go and see Annihilation, and as I was coming out, I just saw lots of people going in wearing kind of uh, traditional African kind of colours and, and patterns, and it was like, oh, man, it's great that this is still... Fit, that people are still really embracing this, and you know, black audience members in particular are really getting a chance to embrace and celebrate their heritage in a in a way that you know, is also questioning and or causing Hollywood to question all of its 
preconceived notions about what kind of movies need to get made to be successful. Mm. I too went to the cinema on, on Friday and it was absolutely heaving um, mm. with, and like I was asking some of the staff there, you know, what's, what's out today that's, you know, getting everyone in, in these huge numbers that were like queuing out of the door and uh, to the top of the escalators. And he was like, oh, no, it's just Black Panther again. Um, he's, he's like, it's been like this a week and just like wow mm. this is you know people are digging this and importantly as you know we've seen with a few like runaway successes and also the sleeper hits that are happening people are going multiple times uh yeah. people are you know going loving it and coming back two three four times which is uh is, is really wonderful to see particularly when you know you talk about how much theatrical attendance has declined over the last couple of decades you know people uh theaters don't sell as many tickets as they used to i mean the that you could say that for any decade since the 50s um because like cinema's peak certainly in the u.s its peak of attendance was in the immediate post-war uh boom years so to say that ticket sales have fallen isn't really that uh, indicative of anything but I do, I do think a large part of that is that you know, people, uh, cinema has become more disposable in a, certainly mainstream cinema has become more disposable uh, at a time of, of streaming and Netflix and things like that. And so there isn't quite that desire to kind of go and see things multiple times. There is very much kind of like a one and done approach to it. And I'm, that's certainly true in my case. Like it's very rare that I will go and watch a movie multiple times in the cinema. And it's really nice that people are finding something in this movie that is really drawing them to to keep seeing it and to keep supporting it yeah 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 and like i've also seen that tickets for a wrinkle in time have gone on pre-sale um mm. and you know there's a huge wave of support of audiences from black panther you see people on twitter saying you know we have to support wrinkling time as well if you know if if people want to drive home that message that they are bored of the status quo and and seeing not seeing themselves represented on screen, then they've got to turn mm. up and turn up. They are. Mm, yes. And it's also, you know, that like one of the things that's really good about black Panther as well is that it, it in 10 days, it has become yeah, and very easily in the U S the highest grossing film ever by a black filmmaker. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it overtook fate of the furious. I think had previously held that record very, very easily. And, you know, a wrinkle in time would only need to earn like 150 million or 200 million to become the highest grossing film directed by oh no i was gonna say it i'd forgotten that wonder woman uh came out but certainly it, it it wouldn't take much for it to become the highest grossing film by a black female filmmaker and so it'd be good to see you know that level of success transfer over to to that movie to again say to hollywood you don't need to just have white dudes who made one movie in Sundance and uh, and be, was given kind of the keys to the kingdom and given some huge blockbuster property, you can give these movies of any scale to any director from any background and they can deliver you hits or they can deliver you flops. But, you know, it doesn't really... that These things aren't barriers to success in the way that they have been treated for so long. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's spot on. In other news, there was a really great profile of Brendan Fraser in GQ this week, which I think took a lot of people by surprise for, for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, he talked about the fact that he is uh, someone who was ubiquitous for a, for, a, for a fairly long period of time, for about 10 years or so in the late 90s into the early 2000s, 
uh, and even into like 2010 or so i think was was around the last time that he really headlined a movie when they put out the the third mummy movie and that movie furry vengeance which he also kind of headlined a kids movie that came out around then and then you know just kind of disappeared and there was a lot of kind of i certainly um i often wonder about what happened to him particularly because he was someone who was such a big part of my early childhood i really liked him in the mummy movies and uh, uh and uh <laughs> dudley do right and george of the jungle both of which i uh enjoyed a lot when i was younger and then yeah he kind of just mm-hmm. disappeared and this profile talked about the reasons for that one of which was you know he, there were allegations of sexual assault against the head of the follow hollywood foreign press agency from brendan fraser you know kind of deeply inappropriate touching of him in kind of a public place after a gala uh which was really distressing to read obviously in light of everything else we've been hearing recently mm-hmm. but also there was all this kind of more prosaic stuff about you know if you're a guy who does a lot of his own stunts and you're getting thrown around a lot it's going to take a wear and tear on your body and he's kind of talked about the fact he had to have lots of operations and lots of physical treatments over time and it was a really sobering read but also this kind of it it really reminded me about how much uh i had loved brendan fraser when he was one of the biggest stars in the world Mm. that's the thing that shines through is kind of just how likable he is as a person someone who when talking about something with the the interviewer and is is kind of perhaps getting emotional says he oh i need to go and shoot off a few arrows but that's not a mm-hmm. euphemism he is actually takes a bow and arrow outside and yeah. uh you know nails some archery targets and like he seems like such a down-to-earth guy who like you say was everywhere and he's someone that you could easily kind of dismiss as lightweight or an actor without real depth but when you think about the films he's been in and you think about why you like them and and you realize that that is exactly the reason why you like them because he has depth mm. and he has this uh, this this charm and likability which is that's impossible to fake it's it's called presence mm. and you know he he has it and he has not been around to share it with us for ages and and reading that piece kind of made you really sad as to why he hasn't been around and that we probably could have had a lot more work if he hadn't been essentially kind of chewed up and spat out by the industry. Um, and also the fact that he's literally being held together with string. <laughs> um, <laughs> cause you know, he did a lot of his own stunts and put his body on the line, which people don't realize is, is a big part of being an action star. They just assume mm. that, you'll just get a stunt dude in. But the thing is, is there's only one Brendan Fraser. Um, if a stunt dude takes a beating, they swap him out for another stunt dude. And, mm. or even better now, they swap them out for a, like a, a digital double. But, you know, if you're an actor who wants to make everything as real and, and believable as possible, they'll put themselves in those, in those situations. And, you know, they're going to get torn up. And like, he's someone who could quite easily have just had to retire in his mid forties of just being, you know, unable to even walk onto a set each day. And it Mm. kind of just reminds you of, of, you know, for big action stars and stuff, like it's kind of similar to being like a big athlete, I guess, like Mm. in the, you know, you obviously get the rewards and the riches and, and the attention and, and everything, but you know, your career can be over very quickly. 
Yeah, weirdly, he reminded me of uh, Bo Jackson, particularly the fact that both of them apparently have taken up archery in their <laughs> in their older age. Uh, as anyone who's seen the Thirty for Thirty mm. uh, documentary about Bo Bo Jackson will will know. But yeah, I think a, a big part of it as well that, that um, it also got me kind of hopeful about his you know maybe the second act of his career he was on the third season of the affair the the showtime show which um is is very popular and everyone said that he was really great on it and uh kind of the the framing of the art uh, the profile is he's he's in the middle of shoot he was at the time in the middle of shooting trust which is a fx series produced by danny boyle which is all about the kidnapping of john paul getty the third which was also the subject of uh all the money all the money in the world mm-hmm. uh and I think that Brennan Fraser is playing the equivalent of the Mark Wahlberg character in that movie. Uh, so it, it kind of made me hopeful that maybe now, because of the sheer number of TV shows that are being made and the fact that a lot of shows... I mean, you saw this, obviously, with the People versus O.J. Simpson and the casting of Cuba Gooding Jr. Mm-hmm. in that. There is that sense that, you know, there are there's a, there are people who maybe aren't quite enough of a draw to be in movies anymore or that they don't really have any kind of movie career to speak of but that they still are a name that people like so there's a cachet to casting them in a tv show and that is a really good fit for someone like brendan fraser who could conceivably slip into more of a character actor style performance at this point in his career and you know makes you hope that this will mark a point in which he'll be able to do more work and work that won't destroy him physically mm. yeah yeah it's uh, that tv shows did sound really appealing but mm. my big worry is is because uh, all the money in the world deals with the exact same story and has had so much press that yeah. by the time we actually get to see it people won't care mm. which is a real worry yeah although in its favor and no one went to see all the money in the world <laughs> So, oh, okay. so while it has um, generated a lot of headlines, I don't feel as if the story has been exhausted. Right. Uh, and and there is there certainly seems to be more of a desire for true crime stuff on television than in movies at the moment. And the the continued success of the American crime story franchise with the the uh, Gianni Versace series that's currently airing now suggests that maybe there's a bit more room in there for that show to kind of assuming it's good um to kind of find a niche uh separate from all the money in the world mm, yeah, yeah it's danny boyle's behind it, isn't he he's producing it yeah and i assume probably directing an episode or two mm. uh so yeah so it's got it's got, obviously got some big names and, and talent i think selma blair also is in it another person who uh hasn't done as much work as perhaps she should have because she was always a, a really great presence in movies Mm, yeah, there's there's lots of those people, isn't there? There's people you, you think of as being ubiquitous with the time because of a certain style of film that was being made. If I always think about the 90s post-Sundance boom, I think of like people like Parker Posey or, mm. you know, Dylan McDermott, uh, like people who would just appear, Dermot Mulroney, if, you know, but <laughs> either or. Um, the people who were in those movies because that was the kind of work they were getting. But then there's other people that you just think of as being part of a time period and then they just disappear and yeah those two selma blair and brendan frazier who must have been in a film together at some point um those two you can't think of a reason as to why they slipped away from the limelight mm, selma blair is not in it i just double checked it's hillary swank who's in it 
Oh, absolutely should be in more things. Yeah. 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 Considering she's, you know, a double Oscar winner is, Mm. you know, can pretty much do anything she wants. Um, I always think, Oh, wonder what she's up to, which is not really what you should be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really nice. I don't know if you saw, did you see Logan lucky? I did not see Logan lucky. She has a small appearance in that, and whenever she's on screen, it's like, oh man, Hilary Swank's great. Mm. <laughs> it's so it's so good seeing her in something again. So it's very exciting that she is going to have a TV show in which to, you know, be great. Mm. Uh, similar to like um, Bridget Fonda, who you know retired from movies a long time ago now, but where you think you know it's great that she, you know, wants to kind of go off and do stuff that isn't related to the film industry and live her own life, but you also can't help but feel a little sad that you're not seeing more work from from her because, you know, she's great, uh, as is Hilary Swank. Yeah, these people should give up their happiness for our amusement. <laughs> exactly. They, are, they have made a contract of audiences to appear on screen until they fall over and die on the set of a sitcom when they're, like, in their 60s because yeah. of overwork. Because we demanded it in our Faustian bargain. <laughs> exactly. Hmm. So our subject this week is kind of a nebulous thing. I should stop saying nebulous. I always say it. It's, I think I use it like four times. It's a great word, Ed. And it is like, a great word. Yeah, you can kind of just use it in a situation where people will go along with it because they're perhaps not sure what you mean. Mm, um, so, yeah. you know, it's fine. I like it. It's nebulous. Okay. Totes nebulous. <laughs> Hashtag totes nebulous. Get it trending, everyone. Yeah. Um, but, uh, it, I mean, you it kind of stemmed from your desire to talk about one particular TV show, and then that reminded me about another story that came out about that TV show, uh, which kind of... And so I, I, I kind of want to talk a bit about discovering or rediscovering older TV shows in the streaming age, because... It's something that I think is happening more. There are TV shows that have been revived because of interest in them in streaming. And it kind of goes against what you would think would be happening because we, we've talked in the past about how many new TV shows there are now. There's, there's 500 scripted TV shows being made in the US at the moment, which is an insane amount of shows to be made. Mm-hmm. And you would think in the deluge of new shows that people would be kind of wanting to try and keep up with that. But what you also find is there's this countervailing movement of people being like hey let's just watch these shows that are showing up on netflix which you've either seen a dozen times before but want to revisit or you kind of think hey i never actually watched all of er so you know now it's on hulu why don't i check it out Mm, it's kind of like is there room for old tv shows in the era of peak tv and Mm. i I mean i always feel this guilt about movies like yeah you know i fell over myself to watch Bright, knowing that we'd have to talk about it and that in some way I have to sound informed. But I've still never seen 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is, right, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, that's shameful, right? But, mm-hmm. like, I keep thinking, oh, I really must make time to watch Eight and a Half or all of the searches. But mm. at the minute, like, you know, I've got too many TV shows to watch, plus, you know, all these films that are being dumped on Netflix that I have to see because they're out now. Mm. Um, and the what kind of spurred us on to talk about this was um, two conversations I had with people in the last week. One was with my friend who attended a friend's quiz. And not a quiz for a group of friends, a right. quiz in a pub about the television show Friends. So that's mm. one. 
The second was a conversation with um, an American girl in the pub who I'd never met before, and she said, as an American, uh, and by saying those words, she is talking for all Americans. Mm. <laughs> so this is this is a decree that has come from on high. Um, she said, I'm baffled by the popularity <laughs> of Friends in the UK. Yeah. She said, obviously, it was a very popular show that a lot of people watched and, you know, were into it. But people just don't quote it and mention it or, like, get caught up in it and endlessly rewatch it as much as they do in Britain. Mm. And I just thought... They would be a weird thing to talk about. A, the, to me, baffling <laughs> popularity of the TV show Friends. And mm. B, talk about the... Uh, there was an article, I think it might have been Todd Vanderwerf, possibly. One of those mm. guys, I always get the, the him and uh, Zolocytes confused uh, right. about about ER, because ER had just gone on streaming and saying about how, how you make time for a show which is technically the best show on television right now or best <laughs> show available for streaming right now when there mm. are so many other things to watch in the age of peak TV. Mm. So that's really where it comes from because, and, you know, we, we can start with Friends. I'll just put it yeah. out there. Like, I used to fucking love Friends. Yeah. Right? I When I was, like, maybe, I must have been, like, 17, 18, I think, maybe, and... I used to love it. So you, it was probably in its peak around then. So like 97, 98 maybe. Yeah. Probably gone from a show that people like to have been the show that most households in the UK would own on many, many VHS tapes. Mm-hmm. Is that about yeah. fair? Yeah. I remember around about then uh, in school, we had to do uh, something called a personal anthology mm-hmm. where uh, you had to pick a theme and then you had to assemble a bunch of works of art about that theme. I chose war, mm. which I did purely so that I could show the first attack on the alien ship in Independence Day. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, uh, and then I collated a bunch of other, like, fucking poems and shit to uh, back up my <laughs> reason for wanting to show that. And someone in it, I think, chose... It was either... I think they chose Sacrifice... And mm-hmm. the clip they showed was the clip from Ross and Emily's wedding where Rachel shows up and she's about to declare her love to Ross and then she decides not to because it would cause him too much pain and that's what she used to illustrate that. But it was such an obvious kind of thing to pick up, pick that everyone would know uh, that it, it was really kind of indicative of how ubiquitous the show had become at that point like everyone in that room knew exactly what was happening in that moment she really didn't even have to set up any context she's like, oh yeah no ross and rachel yeah they've kind of had an on and again off again relationship from for many years and you know ross is getting married and they're in england you know it's like it was very apparent to all of us what was going on even if like at the time i didn't watch friends all that much i watched it a lot over the subsequent years because it was always on channel four and then e4 mm-hmm. but it, it just through cultural osmosis, I was like, yep, yeah, okay, I know exactly what's going on at this point. Yeah, and I think that's it, isn't it? The fact that it's always on, mm. it is accessible, it yeah. is well-crafted enough to be easily watchable, mm-hmm. and all of the characters and situations are boring enough to project anything you want onto them. 
Mm. Um, and I think that's like this kind of talks about speaks to sorry two different ages of television watching where yeah. I said to you before we started recording that there was a point in time which I could say to someone I've seen every episode of Friends and that would mm. be an impressive feat yeah because in those days you know 20 years ago people weren't as completist about TV shows they aired week to week you dipped in and out you unless you bought the box sets um, or which was an investment, which was a big <laughs> investment. Yeah. Yeah. Like t- eight videotapes for one season, you know, that, that was, you know, a lot of shelf space to take up. Um, mm. then you, you would, you wouldn't kind of have to soak it all up. Whereas now, um, you know, kind of post the Sopranos and the golden age of TV to the point now where things are streamed and people will tell you, Oh, I watched all of Stranger Things in one sitting, and that's the impressive thing. Not that you've seen all of it, but just how quickly mm. you did it and how you absorbed it. So it kind of speaks to that. Um, the fact that it's always on and kind of constantly just there. But one thing that I kind of just can't help but think is that as soon as I saw Seinfeld... Because mm-hmm. e- even when I liked Friends, I always liked like the first three seasons. I thought were really tight, and then yeah. after Monica and Chandler sleep together and get together, then it becomes somewhat of a soap opera with jokes. And right. you know, when the audience starts going "ooh" every time something <laughs> romantic happens, then it's it's pretty much gone. And there's there's no tension. There's no will they won't they because they have, and yeah. you know. I kind of started to tune out from them, but I, I always said, well, the first three seasons are solid. And then I saw Seinfeld at university kind of late at night. And I thought this is a weird show. And then kind of never saw it again until it was available on DVD and then watched all of those. And I was like, ah, the stuff that I liked in friends was totally nicked from Seinfeld, which had been had done it a before and be better. And I wonder whether friends is held in such high esteem in the UK is because we really didn't get Seinfeld. Yeah, that was my first thought when we were, when I was considering this subject, is that Seinfeld obviously did come to the UK, but like the Larry Sanders show, which was kind of the other great sitcom of the 90s or one of the other ones, it was just dumped in the middle of the night on the, like, the BBC and it never picked up an audience apart from kind of like a, a small group of people who like watch it, but it, it never got the, the pride of place of being on like Channel 4 in prime time for people to kind of watch. But yeah, once I did start watching Seinfeld's when it started coming out on DVD mm-hmm. in the UK, that was when I was like, oh, right, yes. Friends was definitely trying to do what Seinfeld was doing, but with more, with the edges and the idiosyncrasies sort of sanded down a little bit and a more conventionally attractive cast. Mm-hmm. And you can really see in something like, uh, there's an episode of Friends, which I absolutely did not understand when I first saw the show, where Joey is taking part in some sort of medical tests, which means that he can't have sex. Mm-hmm. And he and Monica says to him, well, and he's just started dating this girl. And Monica says, well, you know, you could just be there for her. And he says, what do you mean? And then, then like, you know, be there for her. And it's such a Seinfeldian thing of A, repeating a line over and over again, but also trying to hint <laughs> at something that you can't say on television with some sort of linguistic gymnastics. Mm. It's very much a master of your domain kind of thing. <laughs> 
is exactly the same idea, but obviously they didn't build a whole episode about it. It's just kind of like the C plot of that particular episode. But yeah, when I was watching that, I was thinking, oh, right, yeah, everything about this show was trying to do the show about nothing approach, but with these underlying, longer-running romantic subplots between various characters. Mm. And you know, like, like my favourite episode of Friends, um, and still is, the one where they're trying to go to Ross's... Uh, he's got some kind of like thing at the university, <laughs> and no-one's ready. Yeah. And yeah, there's yeah. a whole ridiculous thing about Chandler stealing Joey's seat and Joey stealing all of his clothes, <laughs> etc., etc. And th- that's a funny show, right? That's a funny mm, episode. Yeah. And, for, yeah. and I was always like, no matter what other shows I'll see, Friends will always have that. Except... <laughs> In, like, the nine episodes of Seinfeld that had happened before, like, the Chinese restaurant, where the entire yeah. episode is in real time, them waiting for a table in a Chinese restaurant. Or the one where they're trying to look for their car for an entire episode in a multi-story car park. And, like, yeah. you instantly then feel a little cheapened. It's like loving Oasis, having never heard <laughs> the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And all of yeah, a sudden yeah, yeah. you're like, oh, oh, oh. Actually, not only is this far superior, but, like... It feels a little cheap coming in the in the wake of this stuff. That said, there are some really strong episodes in Friends, and there is, you know, the actors are always fairly on point. But after like mm. four seasons, the ideas start to dry up, and it, it just becomes like um, trying to force characters into weird situations, like putting joey and rachel together and yeah i was gonna cite that exact one that idea that they made a big deal of and then immediately dropped because clearly yeah. they thought oh this is terrible and no one likes it yeah and and kind of trying to wring every ounce of star power they could get out of their you know cameos that they'd have in um, which was always something was the show was about, you know, in, in the early seasons, you'd have like, uh, Noah Wiley and George Clooney turn up in, uh, mm. the kind of, as their ER characters ostensibly, or uh, weirdly, I keep thinking how strange it is that there's the episode where John Claude Van Damme is the star of a big action film, but Julia Roberts is the makeup artist. Um, yeah. whilst that's a funny joke, just the idea that John Claude Van Damme had any kind of cultural cachet back then. Hmm. Yeah, or the one where... A joke which absolutely made no sense to me because I didn't watch Mad About You, or at least not enough to kind of get the the thing, but where Helen Hunt shows up and she sees Phoebe and Lisa Kudrow played a character on Mad About You who was also named Buffet and they end up making her, you know, Ursula, her sister and all that. Mm -hmm. And so they're interacting with each other where she's, like, trying to get her to make her a coffee because she thinks that she's Ursula. And it was, yeah, it's just a really weird crossover joke that doesn't make any sense unless you know the fact that there's another show with the same actress showing up and playing kind of like a small role or another one which was always really weird was when they all show up at Central Perk and Robin Williams and Billy Crystal are sitting on the couch and they're like playing some previous existing characters that they'd done together Mm. and you're like oh well this is this is so weird this particular comedic choice although it is obviously fun seeing those two actors together yeah. Uh, what do you make of, like... I mean, since Friends has come back to Netflix, there has been a lot of think pieces, because this is the age we live in now, and mm-hmm. one of the very popular ones was um, Friends is problematic now, yeah. which, you know, it's 25 years old. I would probably expect it to be problematic. How problematic is it, Ed? I think it's 
it's it's problematic in the sense that a lot of things that used to be used as easy shitty humor in the 90s uh which i think you can also see in something like ace ventura Mm -hmm. which uh as brooklyn nine pointed out is pretty solid but a little transphobic uh (laughs) yeah at, at the end um but basically where people didn't they they realized you know you can't make easy jokes about black people and hispanic people and asians anymore i mean you could do it a little bit but not too much you can't really kind of overdo it Mm. so suddenly they were like well what kind of groups do people not really care about that we can kind of make easy jokes about and so there's lots of like gay panic jokes in there and there's um stuff to do with like chandler's dad so but it's very much something which they kind of throw in as a joke and then later on kind of trying to dress seriously and so there's a mixture in there of just kind of like easy gay panic jokes and also attempts by them to try and be transgressive by raising these things and doing it for in a way that at the time was kind of like at the cutting edge of what being progressive meant but now looks kind of retrograde so i think it's kind of caught between on the one hand comedy comedic targets in the 90s were different to what they are today and in other cases they're trying to be more inclusive in ways that now feel kind of like false and weird and you know kind of um tin-eared but there's also the broad but aside from that the broader problem is that it takes place in new york which is kind of a very big multicultural city and there are precisely two prominent characters of played by actors of color in the entire run of the series uh both of whom end up being ross's girlfriend for a time uh which is from now when we think of things like like the aforementioned brooklyn 99 which is kind of an effortlessly multicultural and very kind of funny broad sitcom mm-hmm. you kind of think yeah it's kind of weird that you made a show where all the characters were white uh and that was never ever commented on at all mm. do you like i kind of made the point quite flippantly at the start of this but the reason that people identify with the characters in the show and the situations in the show is mm-hmm. because the characters were were painted with unusually broad strokes for yeah. e- even for like a network sitcom um they were you know, your stereotypical Jewish princess, your kind of, like, tough Italian-American guy, your kind of... Yeah. Uh, the, the the sarcastic comedy relief, uh, yeah. who is, you know, everyone thinks he's gay. Isn't that funny? But, like, when people say, oh, I'm just like Monica, but with a little bit of Phoebe and a little bit of Rachel, is because those characters are... The building blocks of most people just spread out into a random kind of, like, configuration. Hmm. Yeah, I think also the the show kind of got broader as it went along and like all those characters kind of become more identifiable with a single trait mm-hmm. uh, particularly joey who at the start he's not like a smart character but he's kind of street smart and savvy mm-hmm. and then as the show goes on he becomes a complete idiot who doesn't understand anything about how the world works uh and that's just that's just kind of what happens with sitcoms the the writing just gets broader as people kind of hone in on what particular aspect of the character really makes people laugh and that's just kind of understandable but yeah the, the fact that those characters are very broadly drawn makes them very accessible and i do think there is something to be said for you know it's it's popularity in the 90s that there is something kind of aspirational about it mm-hmm. like even though they're all kind of struggling well actually no uh chandler has like a well-paying job but everyone else is like struggling and poor 
Uh, they don't have like the. They're not really sure about where they are in their lives and things like that. Uh, the j- jobs, your joke, you broke. Love life's DOA. All of these things. There is something, but but they're also quite glamorous looking people. So if you're like I was, kind of like ten, eleven, twelve years old, you look at that and think, wow, you know, being in your twenties seems like really scary, but also kind of exciting. And if you're in your twenties when the show was airing, then you kind of think, you know, you see something of yourself in it, and you kind of think that's just kind of like a slightly heightened version of what my life is like. And I think that allows it to really connect with people across different generations which is why it's been so successful for so long and why you know the, the reason why channel 4 kept playing it for eternity was because people kept watching it because they could kind of keep coming back to it it was comforting and as people age they saw different things they understood jokes that they didn't get before because they didn't understand anything about sex you know that is uh, part of its its appeal is it's very kind of broad and weirdly universal in a way that you know Seinfeld wasn't but at least not for English audiences because conversely Seinfeld is the most popular sitcom in the history of US television Mm. Uh, but I think that's more just because it is more attuned to the rhythms of American culture and language uh, in a way that allowed it to kind of really take off over here uh, in a way that it just never could in the UK. Mm. I guess, you know, the appeal of Friends is is very safe. There's mm. not too much kind of edginess in there. Whereas no. whilst Seinfeld was also in like a sitcom on a network where they couldn't talk about things, they would do an episode about trying not to masturbate for, an inter- like, you know, for like the longest. Whereas Friends would never have a, an episode where one of the characters pushed an old lady out of the way to get to eat an eclair out of a dustbin, <laughs> uh, which is something that happens in Seinfeld. And Seinfeld's, you know, they famously had a mantra of, like, no hugging, no learning, whereas yeah. that's all of what Friends is. There's, yes. you know, continually having problems presented, learning from them, and realising that everyone around you is awesome mm. and beautiful and <laughs> ultimately successful. Whereas, yeah. you know, Seinfeld was about <laughs> four barely likable characters, <laughs> you know, squeezing their way through uh, <laughs> a weird, really strange existence. And then, like, you know, I would love to see a world where Channel 4 was doing daytime repeats of, like, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen, which is, is, is pretty much the antithesis of Friends. That seems to be the, you know, the logical point that instead of characters painted in broad strokes in situations that everyone can relate to, it's characters painted in very, very defined strokes uh, in situations that are barely conceivable for any human. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would have been nice if Friends had done to Gunter what Sonny did to Rickety (laughs) Griffith. That would have been Uh, amazing. If that his arc over the course of the series was not that he's the kind of barely tolerated side character who occasionally gets lines of dialogue to becomes a heroin addict and a prostitute. Mm. I mean, maybe that's what was going on and it was all kind of under the surface of that guy's performance. Mm. It's, I think it's weird that... So Friends is always on, uh, we know this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually caught like a mid-afternoon rerun of an episode on Channel 4 when it was still on Channel 4. I'm not too sure it still is anymore. It's on Comedy Central on kind of uh, mm. sky over here but 
Um, I saw an episode where they'd, they'd cut a lot out for, you know, to make it suitable for a daytime audience. Um, mm. And it was a great example of like just putting something out there that people will like just uh, consume without thinking about it because it's familiar. Because the um, bit in question was, I think the episode is one where Ross and Chandler's old college roommate is coming to New York for the weekend to party with them. And he's called Gandalf. Yeah. And the joke in the TV show is they say to Joey, oh, yeah, it's going to be awesome. And he's like, what's his name? He says, oh, he's Gandalf He's because he's a party wizard. And he's like, who's Gandalf? And they say, didn't you read Lord of the Rings in high school? And Joey says, no, I had sex in high school, which is the joke. But on the mm. mid-afternoon Channel 4 rerun, he just says, you don't know who Gandalf is? Didn't you read Lord of the Rings in high school? And the audience just laughs. And that's it. <laughs> and I was just like, you, you've actually, by editing the joke out, because you're afraid to say the word sex on television uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon, you actually just rendered that entire scene completely meaningless. Um, mm-hmm. And But you, you've just left the laugh in as if now the joke is on Joey for not having read Lord of the Rings to not know who Gandalf is. And that's really unusual because there are people who have only seen that version who think Mm -hmm. that's funny and that's where the joke is. But they are invested in it because they like the characters and they're watching it just because it's on all the time. My favourite example of that in Friends is the episode where Phoebe's twin sister Ursula is a porn star. Mm Mm-hmm. Because when that aired during the day, they had to remove all references to sex, to the word porn itself, and also most of the titles of the movies that she was in. So when you remove all of that, (laughs) that entire subplot of the episode is rendered completely incomprehensible. Like, it literally is like they say, Phoebe's a... And then laughter and shocked laughter. It's just like, unless you have seen the uncut episode of the uh, version of the episode, it is this weird (laughs) existential nightmare in which everyone is horrified, but no one will say why. (laughs) (laughs) Becomes this fucking Boonwell movie of of these characters being trapped in a situation in which they all know what's going on, but none of us do. Mm, Yeah, it's it's almost like... Just don't show it. Just maybe yeah. hold back the episodes where... And I, I do remember one of the uh, porn titles uh, was Inspect Her Gadget, which I, mm-hmm. I always thought that was pretty funny. But like, just yeah. hold that episode off because it, it, it loses complete meaning. It's not like people are watching it in order in any kind of yeah. series continuity. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's not like there's some big series-defining event that also takes place in the episode where they're like, ah... Oh. We just can't, we can't remove this. It won't make any sense to all of our people who are kind of like studying it and being like, hmm, yes, yes, okay, now this is happening in this and trying to crack the code of Friends' deep and involving mysteries. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it also reminds me, there's an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where an entire subplot of it is about how Buffy and her f- boyfriend Riley are having sex and the sheer raw passion of their sexual chemistry awakens dark spirits in this kind of frat house that they're in and that was one because because buffy always used to air one episode at like 6 45 in the afternoon on a friday and then at 11 p.m you would get to see like the full more violent version and that was really one where that entire episode just makes no sense <laughs> and is like five minutes shorter 
without when you watched the version that aired during tea time and then you had to wait up just to see what was that episode about it was just completely baffling mm, yeah I, I'm, I'm gonna move on from this in a second but yeah. like it, there's there's a when eddie murphy bear with me uh when mm-hmm. eddie murphy became suddenly a children's entertainer rather than yes. a motor-mouthed stand-up comedian with uh, edgy screen persona Mm-hmm. Suddenly, TV networks in Britain started showing his films like during the day because the kid, kids liked him in Nutty Professor and uh, Dr. Doolittle. Let's show mm-hmm. Beverly Hills Cop at six o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And this, this genuinely happened. They showed Beverly Hills Cop <laughs> at six o'clock. That's an 18 film where in the, mm-hmm. in the first five minutes, a character is shot in the head at point blank range on screen. Yeah. Um, there is multiple deaths, there, like bloody gunshot wounds. There is some incredibly fruity language, but yet mm-hmm. they did so. And there's a bit, I think it might be Beverly Hills got one or two where, oh, it's one, where they go undercover in a strip bar. And mm, yes. um, yep. Beverly, uh, he goes and orders a drink, and because obviously he's the fish out of water, he's from Detroit, and this is Beverly Hills, he's in a like a dive strip bar, which you don't know is a strip bar because they've cut all the, <laughs> all the shots of the strippers, so it's just a bar. And uh, he says something like, oh, can I just get like a club soda or a Coke? And then the, the barman says, like, $10. And he's like, $10? I should get, like, a blowjob for free, with you know, for that price. And yeah. in the cut version, he just says, can I have a Coke? And he's like, $10. And he just, he just pays him. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> Is it, what? Is it just like, and then there's kind of a moment where you think, oh, he's surprised at the price. And then I was like, oh, yeah, but then the, the joke's gone. You might as well just cut the whole scene. Cut the whole film or don't show it. You know what I mean? Yeah. What's the point? Uh before we go on, because I'm not sure I'm ever going to have an opportunity to save this on the podcast, um, I, me and my, uh, me and my sister wrote a treatment for the finale of Friends as part of a competition because there was a competition in some magazine where they basically said if you write you write this treatment and the best one will get to go to the screening of the 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 not screening but like the the filming of the finale of Friends. Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh, great. But the problem is, like, back in the bad old days where you were, like, a full year behind what was happening in the US, we had no idea what the plot line of the season would be. And what we had seen up to that point was the start of the Rachel and Joey relationship. Okay. So our thinking was, okay, this is going to be running throughout the whole thing. And so our entire thing, and we also knew that there was going to be the Joey spin-off. So our finale was this really, really depressing story about how Joey was in love with Rachel. She decides to go back, get back together with Ross, which obviously is what happened. Um, and then he's so crestfallen that the show ends with him getting on a plane to Los Angeles and vowing never to see anyone ever again. <laughs> uh, and I just remember thinking, that was a really good... Uh, that was a really kind of uh, good, emotionally honest way to end the sitcom, but also it probably would have been the most hated finale for a TV show of all time, especially considering how Joey is a series-ended and unfolding. Mm. I think it's funny because like in, in sitcoms, they'll always resolve, and then the much-loved characters will go off and have an adventure somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would have been amazing, <laughs> where like the entire series of Joey was just this kind of... like bitter, resentful actor 
<laughs> he just like moved all the way across the continent to get away from people that he just hate. He thought he trusted him. They mm-hmm. gave him a beef trifle, and you know he ate it just knowingly that knowing it was wrong. Uh, he went through all these adventures with them. He had like a you know a goose and a chicken, and they <laughs> fucked him over. <laughs> they they ruined him. And now he's going to go and he's just going to be like this alcoholic, you know, <laughs> he'll probably end up in pornography. Mm-hmm. Cause like there's that joke in one of the episodes where he, he's in a porno movie. He's like a, in the mm. background that could be, yeah, that could be it. Like Joey's like descent into like the boogie nights. He ends up like with a Coke filled, like robbery of like a mm. drug dealer's house. It all yeah. goes terribly wrong. Um, and then Chandler reads about it and says, could I be any more surprised? <laughs> and then canned laughter <laughs> the end. I'll be mm-hmm. there for you, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a shame they didn't go with that, that treatment, but, you know, <laughs> that was their loss. More for them. So let's kind of talk about this more broadly, about the fact that people are either rediscovering old shows because, like, you know, there are people in their 20s and 30s who watch these shows when they first aired or, or, or older watching these shows when they first aired. But also I think it's really interesting because... I think there is a certain ahistorical element to a lot of online discourse around films and TV. Like, people often complain about this. This most recently came up with Black Panther, where there were all these articles talking about how, like, it's the first time there's ever been a movie about a black superhero. And everyone's like, ah, no. There's like, Mm -hmm. there's been like six or seven of them, and some of them have been really, really successful. Uh, And there's this, this, and or people will kind of post, um, hot takes about like why x classic movie is actually terrible and it's like well people were saying this at the time you know it wasn't like um vertigo was universally beloved when it came out it's not exactly a new thing to say that there are elements of it that don't work or that you think that things about it are sexist or whatever and that you would think that would translate in the world in the the era of streaming to people only prizing like new things but i think the fact that People are discovering Friends for the first time or Frasier, which has really become kind of like a, a, a thing that people really love and has a big following online, which mm-hmm. uh, I, I initially thought was like ironic, but it seems to be genuine that people really love it, which is great because I love Frasier. I think it's a really wonderfully written farce. But I do think that it's interesting that that seems to be going against the trend of what discussion of film and TV is like, is that people are actually using streaming services to discover old things which also i think is probably galling to netflix who are so who have so um put their kind of back behind original content that they've allowed a lot of the shows they had um kind of like in their back catalog and which were the thing that their success was in many ways built upon to lapse and now they're all going to hulu mm, yeah frazier is a weird one because that is probably the greatest sitcom technically i think probably over Mm -hmm. seinfeld of the 90s i'd say just because it is combines that smarts uh uh, but also the kind of the endless likability of john mahoney and Mm. um and of daphne moon you know the reasons you want to keep watching it but then it did kind of jump the shark when the will they won't they is resolved uh spoilers Mm. to everyone who's now marathoning it Uh, and it's also funny that like did you see the winter olympics a couple of weeks ago where one of the american snowboarders was like oh i nearly missed my run because i was watching frasier on netflix i did Uh, and i was like are you 19 and you're watching (laughs) you know people like fast though man people like a classic fast yeah and like you say it is it's kind of a perfectly constructed 
show on an episode to episode basis and it kind of loses it a little bit when they're like we should probably give this thing like long running stakes i guess but mm. yeah there are there's there's one episode again one where the characters are trying to put on a party similar <laughs> to that kind of friends episode but there is one where they have to handle a dinner party and it's just once they get into the actual party itself and it's clear that no one involved is any way prepared to handle any of the jobs that are involved in hosting a party uh, it quickly just devolves into complete chaos and it's just it's a kind of a marvel to see how that show works and kind of to watch the gears work because it is such a finely tuned machine and also in terms of spin-offs it's amazing seeing how different it is tonally to cheers and Mm. how it works so much as its own separate device in a way that didn't work with the aforementioned joey where they smartly what they did with cheers to fraser was they said okay what if we make fraser the normal one and everyone else kind of a little bit more heightened than so that he kind of feels like the 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 center of it all whereas in joey like joey remains pretty much the same as he was on the show and everyone else around him is kind of boring mm, yeah one interesting thing about rediscovering old shows and this is something I noticed when watching an episode of Frasier last week on like Channel 4. They show it at like 9 in the morning, which is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But they stretch it out to widescreen. Oh, um, yeah. And it's, yeah. Not like, it's not like the um, the scandal of like when Buffy landed on Netflix where they, they screened the uncropped version, mm-hmm. which had <laughs> like the boom yeah. mics in it and, <laughs> you know, the stagehands in the background. Because for those, you know, who don't know, like... It's very common to have the boom mic in the frame, but they know that they're going to crop it out later. Um, mm. But it's, you know, not cool just to stretch it um, to a, a size it didn't fit. A lot of those shows were, weren't, weren't shot in widescreen and looked really fucking weird, like you're sitting too close to the cinema screen mm. um, in an IMAX movie. Um, and it's kind of pretty unpleasant. But it's it's kind of really lovely to see people discovering stuff i've noticed as well that seinfeld is all on amazon prime uh Mm. for those of you in the uk who do genuinely want to see you know how it's done i guess but this is a an interesting one ed if you know in today's age of streaming where you know you have to watch the whole lot right and you've someone said to you oh i wouldn't mind getting into seinfeld for example but I've noticed there's nine series and I don't really have the time. Like, you could legit skip two seasons and Mm. still get it, right? Yeah, I would say so. It's kind of the same as Parks and Rec, where the first season is kind of okay, but not great. Mm, It's a different show. Yes. My advice is always like, you know what, watch start with season two and maybe at some point go back to season one. Because it's almost like a prequel, where it's like, Mm. hey, look at all these kind of like this... These characters are just half-formed clay that haven't quite been moulded and cooked in the comedic oven to become, you know, what they would become eventually. Yeah, it does allow you to say very easily, like, you can just you can just skip it and just get to get to when it really gets good, which in Seinfeld's case is, is season three. But mm-hmm. also, I think the thing that's quite interesting about streaming and why shows like ER and Lost are you feel almost uniquely suited to the format even though obviously they debuted at a time when the very notion of internet video was an insane pipe dream uh less so lost is that you can kind of power through the lulls a little bit like you don't have to go through that frustrating sense like when you are watching a show as it aired live and you kind of hit a bad patch of episodes where you're kind of like oh 
lot of these plot lines aren't really kind of clicking or you know the these episodes kind of feel a little bit tired you can just kind of like power through them and then like two two hours later it's like oh here's another really really great one which seems to suit the kind of older shows which were produced under that model of just crank stuff out and hope that a lot of it is good Mm. You said you've uh, you, you you kind of rewatched the first episode of VR, the pilot of VR. Mm. How does that hold up? Because that's got to be like twenty five years old, nearly. Yeah, it's it's really good. I mean, it wasn't a rewatch because I'd never actually seen it before. I watched ER pretty religiously from like season six through eleven, which again is a very much a different. Uh, a, a sign of how different it was to watch TV back in the nineties and the early two thousands. It's like you could just kind of pick up a show and maybe you would catch some of the rest of it in reruns, but unless you were going to spend a huge amount of money to buy the show on video or DVD, then you just kind of had to, you know, make do with what was being aired at that point. The the first episode is really, really strong. It's a, it, you can really see it as a, as a huge leap forward in the visual and tonal language of television. It's very kinetic. It feels like a movie in a way that also like Twin Peaks a few years earlier felt like, uh, a move more like a movie than a tv series the characters are all really well established it's such a great example of economical writing they establish who everyone is within the first like couple of scenes that they have it sets up all of these plot lines that run over the hour and a half that the, the pilot lasted for and it is just i described it on twitter as sublimely stressful because it mm. is you are watching it and there is just so much drama everyone in the hospital is dying and everyone has to be saved and it's all handled juggled so wonderfully you know there's all this rise and fall between different plot lines and then there's kind of like a a big twist in the middle of the episode when a character that you had been introduced to earlier is brought into the hospital having apparently tried to kill themselves and uh william h macy is in it which i didn't realize happened i didn't realize he was like a major character on the show for sort of four years um uh, and it, it really does stand up as a great example of how to launch a TV show. Like, it seems like, and I'm sure people do, anyone who studies writing probably studies that script to see how you can establish a world so quickly and so effortlessly. Mm. We br- we briefly talked about this before the episode started, but I can distinctly remember ER starting and uh, it being heavily trailed like it was a Hollywood movie finally mm. coming to uh, UK screens. And it was just after uh, Jurassic Park had come out and, and both Jurassic Park and ER were uh, from source material by Michael Crichton and mm. Steven Spielberg, I think, was a producer on ER as well, for uh, certainly in the early times, or executive producer, is that right? Maybe. I know that John Wells, who would later go on to be kind of like the driving force behind the West Wing, was kind of a big part on it. Right, okay. uh, I I definitely always have associated Steven Spielberg with ER, but I don't know what his role actually was in it. Yeah, I think think he was definitely part of it. And it it seemed like really exciting, whereas um, now that kind of stuff is, is ten a penny, which is kind of weird that you would see there's... It's not unusual to see big film names stepping... To, across to TV or do it's not down anymore it's across and I remember seeing ER for the first time and being kind of blown away by how cinematic it was and I don't mean the fact that it had a budget and it had um uh you know kind of like good looking people in it doing exciting things but it was it sounded 
like they had sound design for example mm, when you watch it yeah. and like if it like watch an episode of casualty from the same time <laughs> and it just feels like it's being shot in a warehouse mm. uh, on a sound stage it's very quiet and if you watch an episode of casualty now they really there's lots of beeps there's lots of trolleys scuttling around there's chatter in the background and all that comes from treating television more like film and yeah. you know making it you know, putting the production dollars on the screen in your ears. Um, and that was hugely exciting. And I'm just kind of wondering now if people who are perhaps, you know, in their 20s now or, or coming up to it, go back now and see, uh, will that be as kind of revolutionary now that you can you can watch something like Stranger Things, which has got an enormous budget of, of and, you know, Hollywood talent across the board? I think it, they, it definitely works as a really slick, exciting work of television but yeah anyone who has really been watching prestige television over the last 10 years or so like there's not going to be much in it that surprises them it's more a case that if you are a student of television or media in general it is really striking seeing that and comparing it to what a lot of other shows at the same time were doing it's the same as if you watch homicide life on the street one of my favorite shows where certainly in the early couple of years so much of it is like handheld and there's weird jump cuts um, and it weirdly inspired the Dogmay movement because Lars von Trier cited it as kind of a big influence on his choices when he was making The Idiots. Mm-hmm. Um, and you you see it and it's really striking, but like now it's not that surprising to see shows that are really kind of like worm's eye, very kind of gritty handheld, creating a sense of realism in what is usually a very stylized genre. I think with ER, it's more a case where you look at it and you think, okay, this is a key stepping stone that would lead us to something like Breaking Bad. And you see that also with like The X-Files where people were coming in and trying to make stuff look a little more distinctive and not like, you know, to use the casualty example, whenever I think of casualty, I always think that of people walking very slowly into a room and then like a fairly long static take of people having a discussion Whereas you compare that to like the editing in ER is like whenever they use a long take, it's not because they are just kind of like showing people have a fairly boring, casual conversation. It's like, okay, this camera is going to follow everyone through the entire hospital and then it's going to fly around the operating table as people are trying to like cutting people out of their clothes and trying to make diagnosis. And it's really dynamic and exciting. And then the rest of the time, like the editing is very quick and sharp and and filmic and with er you look at it and you say okay this is a huge milestone on the way to where television would eventually reach you know you don't have a stranger things without something like er that brought this incredibly cinematic style of television production to a huge audience and forced every other network in america to say oh yeah we should probably stop making our shows look very prosaic and shitty Mm, yeah yeah and another kind of facet of this whole this whole dynamic of of old shows being rediscovered is then those shows come back which is something that we've seen obviously with something like fuller house Mm -hmm. uh X-Files, which I think absolutely wouldn't have happened unless there had been huge influence, uh, interest in it from people rediscovering the show on Netflix. Roseanne, which is coming back next month, I think, uh, I think was a big deal when it kind of hit on Netflix and then people were like looking at the numbers and saying, 
maybe there's interest you know people really liked this old show um do you think that that has been a overall kind of deleterious trend because uh obviously the roseanne revival hasn't come back and i'm hoping it's good because i i used to love roseanne growing up mm. but like it doesn't feel as if there have been many of those shows except for twin peaks which was more its own thing there haven't been many where it's come back and you felt like this was a necessary addition to the story of this series well, I mean, it very rarely is a good idea to go back to the well mm. after 20 years. Um, we've seen that with a lot of films that have kind of uh, not been particularly successful, that have tried that trick to kind of cash in on the nostalgia. And there are plenty of shows and things that do the aforementioned Stranger Things, for example, which deliver that pure hit of nostalgia, but in a, in a new way, I guess. Mm. Um, but I kind of really don't like it because the reasons for doing it are very rarely kind of artistically sound yeah like for the tv shows that people genuinely want to see more of um that you wish would be revived things like firefly or freaks and geeks for example they would Mm. be or terriers ed to use Uh, your uh you know your uh much beloved terriers like you know those are the shows that would you know you wouldn't mind checking on those characters 20 years later yeah um but it's the shows like i mean like like fuller house which is has been very successful for netflix Mm. but i it's not something that i thought the world was screaming for and having seen it i'm not i don't really understand any more of that Mm. situation and there's not too many instances where it happens where it's not for a quick buck like the yeah. Twin Peaks, the Twin Peaks thing is like you say, it's on its own, and it also was the film of the year last year. Apparently, yep. that is yep. something that exists in its own planar dimension, I guess. Um, oh, yeah. But everything else is, um, yeah. The only reason it's coming back is to to cash in on something, and the people weren't busy that week. Yeah, I think the only other example I can think of, like I really enjoyed The Force Awakens, and I loved The Last Jedi, but. There isn't that sense that, like, we needed more Star Wars movies. It's like, Disney bought Star Wars, so obviously they're going to need to make more Star Wars movies. The mm-hmm. only one I can think of where it really, really worked, apart from, like, before sunset, <laughs> before sunrise, uh, before midnight, where it was like, yeah, we're just going to kind of keep checking in with these characters anyway, so, mm-hmm. uh, was Mad Max Fury Road, because that was less about nostalgia and making a quick book than George Miller realizing kind of cannily that he could get another movie made because people knew the name Mad Max and then delivering something that was like not really in any way tied to the chronology of the previous movies and not really tonally that similar to it is obviously a lot bigger and grander and more operatic than either the previous movie uh, than any of the previous movies mm-hmm. but he used the kind of nostalgia trend to force through a completely bonkers vision and that's the only way that that's the only one that seems to have really really worked because it it wasn't brought back because necessarily everyone thought oh this is a guaranteed money maker it was just the case of a guy manipulating that desire to say okay i'm going to take a hundred something million dollars of money and i'm going to go into the desert and i'm going to blow a lot of shit up and uh, (laughs) people are going to go crazy for it trust me yeah everything else you look at that there, there, there are so few examples where 
it really translated into an artistic result that really warranted bringing the work back. Uh, Return to Oz. Oh yeah, but that's Would... that's from, from a very different era where yeah, stuff wasn't revived quite as often. Like people still I, did it, but I think it's still the record holder for longest time between original and sequel. Yeah, like that sounds about 1939 right. to like the mid-80s or whatever it was made. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you're going to bring something back, you may as well do something weird. There you go, that's the lesson that Return to Oz teaches us. Yeah, you might as well do something that will horrifically scar an entire generation of children who think, oh, a man, a sequel to Wizard of Oz, that'll be great. That'll be like lovely, bright songs and technical cinematography. No, it's got fucking wheelers and mm-hmm. it's got a woman who takes her head off and puts it into a into a cupboard and when you go in there all the heads start screaming at you and the headless body will chase you it's fucking pan's labyrinth but 30 years earlier yeah that's pretty much what it is it's a pg pan's labyrinth yeah um, oh it's great it's, it's great a... that's on netflix get it watched so yes do we have any grand conclusions from our discussion of these of is it i think overall the the trend of people discovering older shows is good because it mm-hmm. means that I feel like the discussions about television can be a little less focused on like television's great now. There's never been any good television ever before. Whatever is about to debut on Netflix and everyone will forget in a week. Um, mm. Or the you know the idea that television was this kind of incredibly unsophisticated medium for fifty something years and then suddenly. The Sopranos started and it became sophisticated. It's like, no, television has always had great works of art, but a lot of crap. <laughs> but, you know, it's always had great works of art. It's just they've existed in certain contexts. And I think it's good that people can can rediscover them. And it's, it's good as well that, you know, people can watch these older shows and find problems with it because it's a sign that the times have moved on. Um, you know, if you find things in Friends that are less than progressive now at least you can then kind of like say well you know people don't make these sort of jokes that much anymore uh, and it's kind of nice that that doesn't happen and it's certainly and uh, you know there was a someone made the argument when those think pieces about friends started going round. someone said well let's hope millennials never find all in the family and i was like that's kind of a shitty thing to say because that was a show that was deliberately provocative as opposed to friends which was like a kind of benign universally relatable show that very occasionally had, like, shitty humour in it, you know. It wasn't, like, constantly trying to make you question your your um, societal beliefs. Mm, yeah. Although it does now. It does... Yes. The popularity of Friends now makes me question uh, my societal beliefs. But I think mm. that, you know, I'm as baffled by the popularity of Friends as I am as the popularity of Coldplay, for example. Right, yeah. Uh, I kind of look at it in the similar way, that it's 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 kind of generally inoffensive bland content that you can apply any meaning to uh, mm. depending on your own personal circumstances and your relationship with it at the time yeah yeah exactly so we end this episode as we end all episodes with shot reverse shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we have enjoyed and that we think that you the listeners will enjoy as well matt what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week um, because we've been talking about light-hearted, uh, relatable <laughs> things, uh, I'm going to recommend a documentary about suicide. Uh, yes. I'm part of my uh, 52 Films by Women 2018 challenge, uh, I've been 
uh, plowing my way through uh, works by uh, female filmmakers, and one of which I watched a couple of weeks ago, which has stuck with me and haunted me for ages, is a documentary called Kingdom of Us, which is available on Netflix, um, as everything is these days. Um, it is a, um, a film by a filmmaker called Lucy Cohen, who spent several years um, filming a family who live in uh, rural England, and how the, uh, I think there's like eight kids, um, and they are struggling to deal with the, the loss of their dad who committed suicide. And the fascinating thing about it is that it's a very kind of, um, uh, immersive documentary. She spends a lot of time with the family, but the amazing thing is, is the dad was kind of like, uh, he was kind of obsessive about videoing everyone all the time. And most of their family life is on tape somewhere. And mm. as the film goes on and you see more and more footage of the film, it kind of goes from a, an idyllic kind of close-lit family setting to seeing all the warning signs um, on tape everywhere they're playing to see. And, and it talks about the kind of like the uh, hereditary nature of mental illness and um, uh, depression and uh, anxiety and grief and loss and all of those cheery things um, but does so in an incredibly beautiful and poignant way and I would highly recommend seeing it um, but do chase it with something light um, mm. because it is a tough watch in places but comes from me heavily recommended yeah it sounds great and sounds like something I will have to wait until I'm in a very specific mood to <laughs> To watch, but yeah, that uh, you mentioned that to me a few weeks ago, and it's it's been at, it's been at the top of my Netflix queue for a while, and I think I'm going to finally finally crack it open this week and uh, subject myself to <laughs> what sounds like a very worthwhile but intense experience. Mm-hmm. I am going to recommend a movie from that came out last year, which got kind of mixed reviews and faded from view until. A couple of weeks ago, when the lead actor for it was nominated for an Oscar, and the movie is Roman J. Israel Esquire, and the actor is Denzel Washington, Roman J. Israel Esquire, which is the sort of title that you kind of have to say all of all the time, like the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. It's just fun to say. Um, mm-hmm. Is about a lawyer played by Denzel Washington called Roman J. Israel Esquire, who is kind of this guy who was an idealist in the, the 60s kind of did a lot of stuff with civil rights and civil disobedience who has spent most of his career as the silent partner of a law firm his partner has had a kind of at the start of the film his partner has had a um, heart attack or a stroke and is kind of left incapacitated so roman has to go and you know find something else to do with his life you know he's dedicated his life to this this firm and now he has no other options so he the movie is essentially about him trying to find a place for himself and the mistakes he makes along the ways you know he does some incredibly shady ethically dubious stuff as part of his kind of spiraling out and the movie it reminded me of most was kenneth lonergan's margaret or margaret i think it's actually how it's pronounced um because it's the name of the poem which and both of these kind of movies are very rigorously directed and very kind of tightly shot and the performance is really good but the script is kind of amorphous and grand and kind of goes off in weird directions and you're not ever entirely sure exactly where it's going but it's fascinating all the way and it's a really great character study i think denzel 
does an amazing performance in it and it's particularly interesting watching it considering that immediately before this he had done like Fences and The Magnificent Seven where he's a lot more of an assertive, confident character and in this he's very much not that. He's a guy who really doesn't understand how to interact with people and it's kind of incredible watching that after those performances because between them it gives such a great sh- showcase for his his particular range and to see him do something that is so that so goes against what you think of as his usual strength as an actor which is his kind of effortless confidence and this is playing someone who has no confidence in himself and no certainty of where he's going it's also got a really great performance by uh, colin farrell as one of the guys who like runs the law firm he works for and it's just a really fascinating flawed movie that i think uh, people should give a chance to because they didn't get much of a sh- fair shake when it first came out and it's you know what's interesting and fascinating and great about it far outweighs some of its kind of like weird uh, choices and it's kind of like the, the things that fall flat uh, so I think that people should check it out yeah that's one that when I saw him uh, nominated for I was like oh it's uh, this is just Denzel's nomination movie, the way that, mm. you know, Meryl Streep gets one uh, every year, regardless of quality. But um, uh, from what I heard, like, the film's pretty good and your recommendation um, kind of drives that point home. It's also directed by, you told me this earlier, who's it directed by? Dan Gilroy. Yeah, who did Nightcrawler, which Nightcrawler mm. is amazing. So when I, you know, he's doing a film with Denzel, what could go wrong? Yeah, and it's very interesting thinking about those two movies because... Nightcrawler is a lot more tense and focused than this one, but they are both kind of character studies of two characters exploring worlds that they are, you know, trying to in some way kind of conquer. But in one case, it's a guy who really knows what he's doing and kind of pursues his goal with real single, um, single uh, clear-eyed determination. And the other is about a guy who has no idea what he's doing and gets in a lot of trouble. And it's really interesting seeing those two movies kind of in, com- in conversation with each other. Mm. Yeah, yeah. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please like and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places. Review us. That is the best way for people to find our show and to kind of help us grow our audience. You could also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs>